The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Father, it's good to be able to gather together to study your word, to be refreshed by the teaching of your word, to understand that you are a sovereign God who works in history, who's in control of the details of our lives, and is working all these things together, the outworking of your plan and your purposes. Ultimately, your goal is to make us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, and in your omniscience and sovereignty, you're able to pull together all of these details that seem to us to be unrelated and to form a perfect pattern in our lives to produce maturity, to teach us your word, and to help us to see your your grace, your grandeur, and your glory. Now, Father, as we study your word this evening, we pray that you'd help us to understand these things and be refreshed by the principles that we learn. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, two announcements before I forgot. Number one is scheduling. No Bible class uh, this Thursday night. I'll be leaving in the morning to go to uh, Preston City Bible Church and be teaching there the next three nights. And somebody ought to make sure a sign gets posted, front door, back door, somewhere, indicating that class is canceled for Thursday night in case anybody shows up. Also on April 22nd, Saturday night, from 5 to 8 p.m., there will be a family night. Bring friends, bring kids, bring grandkids, nephews, nieces. We're going to show the lion, witch, and the wardrobe and then talk about some things afterwards in terms of developing a Christian a Christian worldview. Okay, let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 29. Genesis chapter 29, and we'll be in verse 21. Genesis 29, 21. We're in the middle of a section that is usually referred to as the Jacob-Laban cycle, where you have this back and forth going on between Jacob the trickster and Laban, who's his uncle, who is out to also trick and connive Jacob. And Laban seems to be getting the upper hand, at least in these first two or three chapters. What we see here is a picture of how God is working in the life of the believer. Often we see the same uh, approach that God uses today. Nowhere in this section does God appear. He doesn't speak to anyone. He doesn't give any insight. He doesn't give any new revelation. What we see is God working covertly behind the scenes in the life of uh, Jacob and in the lives of Leah and Rachel and in Laban, working things together to produce uh, spiritual growth in the life of uh, Jacob and also Rachel. And we see certain things developing in their character. This covers a 20-year period of time, and he is preparing them for the next stage. But before they can go to that next stage where they start to experience all of the fullness of God's promised blessing to Jacob, which he promised at Bethel on his way out of, out of uh, uh, the promised land, on his way to Haran. 
where he had the vision, the stairway to heaven, where the angels going up and coming down, and God reaffirming the Abrahamic covenant to him that God would be with him wherever he went outside of the land, and that God would prosper him outside of the land and bring him back. That is a key to understanding what goes on in chapters 29, 30, and 31, is that God is prospering Jacob from the divine side, What we see is an emphasis on the grace of God, that God bestows his blessing upon us based on who he is and what he has done and based on his plan and purposes. It doesn't have anything to do with who we are or what we have done. This is the one thing people always get confused about. You say, well, uh, you'll often hear people uh, talk in terms of God blessing them because they read their Bible every day or they're involved in witnessing or they go to church or they tithe or whatever it is, that God uh, blesses them because of that. But blessing is never conditioned on human efforts, human works, on any kind of, of uh, anything that man does. Blessing comes from the righteousness of God and is directed to the righteousness of God that's imputed to every believer so that we possess internally perfect righteousness and that perfect righteousness is what has affinity, attraction, what is compatible with the righteousness of God so that God is free to bless us. What we do is incidental to the cause for blessing. And we really see this in this Episode because God has already determined to do something in history through the line of Abraham. So we go back to the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis chapter 3. God promised three things, which everybody now says in their sleep, land, seed, and blessing. Had nothing to do with who Abraham was or what Abraham did. It had everything to do with what God was going to do in history. And for whatever reasons we're not told, he had his reasons Uh, But God chose or selected Abraham, and it was going to be through Abraham and his descendants that God would bless the entire world. And so God is going to bless Abraham in that process. And we saw that Abraham was one of the wealthiest men in the ancient world, and we saw how God increasingly blessed and prospered him, not just materially, but in every area of his life, throughout his life. We saw the promise of the Abrahamic covenant reaffirmed to the promised seed, his son Isaac. And again, God uh, blessed Isaac so that Isaac in turn saw his his, uh, flocks and herds increase, saw his wealth increase. But again, neither one of them, neither Abraham nor Isaac, ever owned anything in the promised land other than uh, the gravesite for Sarah and later for Rebekah. So Jacob then comes along. He's the third. He is the grandson of Abraham, and he is the one who's the designated heir. He's the one who's going to receive the blessing. Now, all through this, we've seen how God has a sovereign purpose on the one hand, and yet on the other hand, we see this human manipulation going on. We saw the Jacob, the heel grabber, the conniver, the trickster, that he out maneuvers Esau when Esau comes in tired from being out hunting that, that Jacob sells him his uh, or sells him a bowl of uh, lentil soup in order to get the birthright and then he is going to come along and at the instigation of his mother 
It's a key thing to remember right now in terms of what happens in 29 and 30. At the instigation of his mother, Rebecca, Rebecca comes up with this plan where they're going to deceive his father Isaac into thinking that Jacob is really Esau. And so they're going to uh, camouflage his appearance. They're going to disguise him so that he looks and feels and smells like his brother Esau. Now remember, the person who came up with the plan is Rebecca. Now Rebecca is Laban's sister. Now Laban's the one who's going to out-trick, out-connive Jacob. So you begin to think that maybe this is a genetic trend in the sin nature of that side of the family, that, that Laban's a trickster, but Rebecca's the one who came up with the plan to deceive, deceive Jacob. Uh, I mean, excuse me, to deceive Isaac. And Jacob is successful, so that Isaac gets completely hoodwinked by this scheme where uh, uh, Jacob comes in and he's got skins on his arms and he smells like he's been outside and he's got this uh, stew that she's cooked that she's made to taste like it's a venison stew. And so Isaac is convinced that this is really Esau and gives him the blessing. And that can't be taken back. And so Isaac has secured, I mean, Jacob has secured from Isaac the birthright and the blessing. And then he has to leave town because he's made Esau so angry that Esau is breathing fire and he's out to kill him. So Isaac has to leave and he's on his way out of the land when the episode at Bethel occurs. God appears to him, reaffirms the covenant, and then uh, uh, Jacob goes on from there and he leaves to go to Haran. There he uh, is rejoined with his uh, distant family, his cousins. He meets Rachel, who he instantly falls in love with, love at first sight, and he goes to Laban. Laban, welcome, his uncle, welcomes him into the family, and they make a deal that Jacob will work for wages, a key term that runs throughout this passage. It has to do with getting what you deserve. So the, the writer of, uh, in the Hebrew uses this word for wage, hire, in order to clue the reader in as to what the theme is, that what's happening here is people are reaping what they're sowing. So divine discipline, as we studied last time, is a key element here. And divine discipline has to do not only with God's retributive punishment for wrongdoing, but it also has to do with God's training and teaching so that we mature in our understanding of who he is and being dependent Upon him, and that often God will not bless us, even though He's already determined what He will give to us. That's determined at salvation, it's determined before salvation. We get the package, but it's not distributed until we reach maturity, or a maturity where we can handle it. The best illustration I can come up with is let's say you had all the money of a Bill Gates. And you had a son, and you thought, well, I'm going to give him a classic car. So you go out on his third birthday and buy him a Lamborghini. But you're not going to give him the keys, are you? No, no three-year-old can drive a Lamborghini. A six-year-old can't. You're going to wait till they're old enough to have the skill, the maturity, to be able to handle an expensive car like that without killing themselves. You won't give it to them too soon, or it will destroy them. God's the same way. He's already determined which blessings he's going to give to us in time and in eternity, but we have to develop the maturity, the capacity to handle the blessing or God won't distribute it. And that's a key principle as a backdrop to what's going on in Genesis 29 and 30. 
both Jacob and Rachel have to come to accept what has happened in their lives and where they are and to trust God to get away from the mental attitude sins of uh, self-absorption, focusing on the past failures, past problems, past defeats. They've got to get away from any kind of a victim victimization mentality. And it's only when they finally get to a point of maturity where they can put their trust in God as their source of happiness and meaning in life that God finally gives Rachel a child. And it is through that child, of course, what's through all of the children that the nation comes. It is specifically through that child that she gives birth to that the nation is going to be blessed and protected for the next 400 years because that child is Joseph. And Joseph is the one that God is going to use to bring about that protection. So there's a training episode going on here. So we see mixed in the background here the doctrines of divine discipline and training for uh, maturity as well as divine guidance. And I pointed out last time that divine guidance is not this idea that God has a specific thing for you to do, specific decisions in life that you have to make, and you have to figure out how to turn your receiver to the right frequency uh, that God's transmitting so you get the right uh, vibrations or the right glow, uh, the right impression, so that you, when you say, well, God, do you want me to marry this woman or that marry that woman, God can give you the right vibration so you know the answer. Uh, God does not operate in the church age that way. There's no more. That's, that's still revelation. There's no more revelation like that. Guidance comes from the Word of God. When you study the Word of God and grow to maturity in the Word of God and you have this reservoir of doctrine in your soul, it is out of that reservoir of doctrine that you make wise decisions. When God has specific things for you to do or not do, God will then intervene. That's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths, not by telling you that you need to go out the back door instead of the front door tonight, but by uh, preventing you from bringing to fruition decisions that He really doesn't want you to make. I often think about... And, you know, decision-making like this is often something that, that captivates younger people than uh, older people because when you're in your late teens and 20s, you're making decisions that are going to set the course of, of the rest of your life, you know, what you should major in in college, where you should go to university, whether you should even go to college or go in the military, uh, whether you should marry this person or that person, should you marry now or just forget about it until you're older. Mostly you should forget about it until you're older. Uh, all of these kinds of decisions you make when you're in your late teens and early 20s, and they truly do set the course for the rest of your life. And often the way divine guidance is taught uh, at most churches in, in, in our kind of pietistic holiness heritage is that God has a specific thing for you to do, so you have to lock into that. He has a specific geographical will. He doesn't want you in Austin. He wants you in College Station. All Aggies say gigam. So, or he doesn't want you in Dallas. He wants you in, in Little Rock. That's because he's going to punish you. But wherever it is, God, you know, that's the idea is God has one and only one thing for you to do. Well, if God has one and only one thing for you to do, trust me. 
no matter what you do, you're going to end up there. It's not a matter for you to try to guess, figure out. God's not playing some sort of a walnut shell game where you have to guess which walnut the pea's under. And if, oh, you made a mistake, you'll never be in my will the rest of your life. You chose to go to Los Angeles instead of New York. Well, you'll miss out on the right woman that I had for you because she's in... New York, she's not in Southern California, so now you're going to miss out on the right school to go to because I wanted you to go to NYU and not to, to uh, uh, UCLA. You know, for the rest of your life, every, you're just never going to get it right again. See, that's where that logic goes. And I remember when I was in college and wrestling with all of these things, I, I think it was my uh, end of my junior year, I had or into my senior year, I'd always wanted to go to Europe with a history professor that had every year he took a tour there on European history, and I really wanted to go, and I had the money to go, and everything was ready to go, and I decided that instead of uh, doing what I had done for three years, and that was to work at, at Camp Penile, working as their uh, uh, program director for wilderness camps and canoe trips and things like that, I had told Gordon Whitelock earlier, I said, I- I'm going to go to Europe this summer. I'm going to uh, go to school. I've spent the last three or four years working at Penal. I'm just not going to go. Well, it was like May the 20th. The trip was supposed to, or the deadline for whether or not the trip would go was on May the 23rd or 24th, just three or four days away. And I called the history professor. I said, well, is the trip going to make it? He said, no, there's only, I felt like Jonah. There's only one person signed up. You're it. He said, I've never had this happen before. And I, and, and I had just really been wrestling with the fact, because Gordon Whitelock had called me three or four times during May, and said, I don't have anybody to do your job this summer. I need you to do this. And I thought, well, maybe I need to serve the Lord. So I said, well, it doesn't look like the trip's going to make. I'm not going to go. The next three days, 30 people signed up, and they went to Europe, and I worked at Camp Penile. So you see, God is going to make it clear to you through circumstances, through open doors, closed doors, whatever, what you, you don't have to sit there and wait for some kind of mystical, subjective vibration as to, as to what you're going to do. God just going to, he, he'll, he'll, you'll have a wreck on the way to some place and that'll change the course of your life or whatever it will be. God will make sure that if you've gone through that process and you've prayed about it, you've consulted uh, mature uh, Christian friends, you've evaluated all of the data, and you've decided that you need to do X instead of Y, God says, okay, you passed the test, you went through the decision-making process in a way that honors and glorifies me, but I really don't want you to do X. I want you to do Y. So all of a sudden, X evaporates. That's the way it'll happen. It's not through some kind of mystic impressionism. That is not how God does divine guidance. He works covertly behind the scenes. And that's exactly how we see God working with, with Jacob. Jacob goes to Haran and... Uh, he's he's not like the, the, the servant who went there the first time to find a wife for Isaac. He's not praying about who he's going to find for a wife on the way there. You don't even get the impression that that's uppermost in his mind. But he comes to the well, and the first uh, person to arrive there after him is, is Rachel with the sheep. And as soon as he sees her, uh, he falls in love with her. And so he enters into this bargain with, with his uncle Laban that he'll work for seven years. And he works for seven years uh, for Rachel. And then finally, I mean, those seven years go by so fast because he's so excited. He's so in love. And the wedding night comes. 
and they have the wedding ceremony, and then he goes into uh, they go into the wedding chamber that night to consummate the 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 marriage. And we don't really have the details, but obviously Rachel and Leah must have had very similar uh, physical. Uh, properties it must have been the same height size so that they could easily pull this off but you see Laban who's the brother of Rebecca comes up with this same you know sort of a bait and switch uh, disguise and and he switches the older sister for the younger sister and uh, Jacob uh, gets duped well of course Jacob responds with anger and resentment and disappointment. But don't you know that somewhere back in the recesses of his mind, he's thinking, now I know how Esau felt. This is the same thing. And see, it's interesting here. What God is doing is that Jacob's divi- Jacob, this is part of Jacob's divine discipline from God, and he's getting the same thing that he gave. What's interesting is when we get to the end of this story, that even though Laban always seems to trick and dupe and con Jacob throughout the episode when it comes to the end God works behind the scenes and Jacob's uh, uh, flocks are going to increase and Laban's aren't and so at the end God turns the tables on, on Laban and Laban gets his divine discipline but it's all done behind the scenes you don't see any kind of direct revelation you don't see the the key figures going to God in prayer in fact God just in the background except for uh, one particular individual so Jacob's response is anger resentment and uh, disappointment starting in about verse 21 Jacob uh, we have the story of Jacob Uh, taking uh, uh, Rachel as his wife and then the uh, deception and in verse 25 it came about in the morning that behold it was Leah and he said to Laban what's this you have done to me was it not for Rachel that I served you why have you deceived me why have you conned me in verse 26 Laban said it's not the practice in our place to marry off the younger before the firstborn so he had a reason but he had kept that to himself but he does come up with a, a win-win situation for for Jacob, and he says, so you complete the bridal week, the first week of the marriage, and, and honor Leah, and then you can uh, marry Rachel, but you'll have to work another seven years. So Laban decides he's going to really get something good out of this. He'll get 14 years of, of uh, uh, indentured servitude out of Jacob, and that means that he gets a lot of free labor. So then Jacob does that, and he marries Rachel, and he goes into Rachel. And verse 30, let me see, get the right slide up here. Verse 30, we're told, Then Jacob also went into Rachel, and he also loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served with Laban still another seven years. Now, I want you to focus on that middle clause there. He loved Rachel more than Leah. How would you feel if you were Leah? And not Rachel. You known for seven years that he loves your sister, and he's the one that he, she's the one that has all of his attention, all of his focus, everything. And now uh, you're part of this whole uh, uh, scheme to outwit him. In fact, it's, it's a wonder he got uh, that Laban got Rachel to participate in this, but uh, he did, and Leah participated in the deception, and now 
he ends up with the younger sister as well, and you're sort of left out in the cold. And I don't know how what their sleeping arrangements were, how things worked, if they were in a tent or they were in a house or whatever, but uh, she's the one who's sleeping alone every night, and Rachel's getting all of his attention, all of his affection, and Leah isn't. But Leah, has, as we see from what hap- unfolds here, Leah is in love with Jacob as well as Rachel. And so she desires his love and his attention, and she wants his affection, and she wants to be the center of his life. So there's this competitive thing that's set up now. Now, this is the first time you have plural marriage really entering into to the, to Scripture from the perspective of someone who is a believer and serving the Lord, and it's sort of foisted upon him. Esau has had multiple wives, and plural marriage was typical of paganism, and it's always typical of paganism. And every time in the Scripture that you have anyone taking more than one wife, it's always clear that they're imitating the culture around them. This is not God's ideal. It was not God's design or His intent, even though it was socially acceptable at the time. It was a violation of God's standard for marriage. But nevertheless, what we see is that God still blesses the union. Why? Not because of what they've done, but because of the prior promise to Abraham. And the principle here is to recognize that much in our lives falls short of God's standard. Many times we make decisions that fall short of God's standard or God's ideal, yet nevertheless God deals with us in grace. He meets us where we are and not where we ought to be. That's what legalism says. Legalism says that before God can bless you, you've got to be here. And God never meets us where we ought to be. He meets us where we are. And He um, continues to bless us despite our sinfulness. And that's one of the major themes that runs through this section is that God is going to bless uh, Jacob and Rachel and Leah, despite the fact that they get all caught up in a lot of failures and a lot of manipulation trying to get his blessing, he continues with his plan, and it's not dependent on who they are or what they've done. Now, in the marriage, Leah and Rachel both were given uh, a wedding gift. Each was allowed to take their maid with her. So Leah has her maid Zilpah, and Rachel has her maid Bilhah. And we're going to see the same problem we had a couple of generations back with Sarah and her maidservant Hagar, and they're going to make the same kind of mistake. So we see a lot of problems, a lot of flaws, and a lot of a lot of failures in this family. And you can just imagine what some of the tensions were for for Jacob living under a tent with four women and two of them are his wives and it's even going to get more uh, complicated than that as we start chapter uh, the next section rather which is verse 31 chapter 29 verse 31 we see how God deals graciously with Leah by providing her children but he leaves Rachel barren now this is brought out because the section itself begins with a note about Rachel's barrenness in verse 31, and when we come to the end of the section, in chapter 30, verse 24, or verse uh, 
uh, 22, we are reminded of Rachel's barrenness, and then God opens her womb. So this whole episode is framed, the whole Rachel-Leah episode is a subset of the Jacob-Laban cycle. And in the Rachel-Leah cycle of competitiveness, it begins and and ends with a note related to her barrenness. That tells us that that's a main thing that we ought to pay attention to, that she is barren for a reason. And it may go beyond what I've suggested earlier in studying the barren woman, that there's only six barren women in Scripture, and each one plays a crucial role. There were other barren women at the time, but the barrenness of six women is brought out because of what God is doing in Israel's history. And the first three barren women that are mentioned in Scripture are the uh, three matriarchs of Israel. There's Sarah, Rebekah, and now uh, Rachel is going to be barren. And she is barren not only for the reason the other two were, which is God is going to demonstrate that he will bring about the blessing in his time and in his way, demonstrating the principle that God is the one who brings life where there is where there is no life, just as in the spiritual realm he brings life to those who are spiritually dead. What God is going to, is doing here with Rachel is teaching her the principle that she has to get to that point where she's willing to trust him, and then she will have the maturity to appreciate the blessing of having a son. So he's got to bring her to spiritual maturity in Jacob as well. He's got to deal with the fact that they're focused on this past event. You know, Jacob's got problems because he's trying to manipulate God. He's also got problems because now Jacob has outconnived him, and so he's become a victim, and you enter into this subjective victim victimhood mentality that uh, I was... Somebody maltreated me, mistreated me. Now I have all these other problems and difficulties in life. And every time something negative happens, what do you do? You go back to this major event and you focus on that. And it's, you know, if that hadn't happened, everything else would be good. And you're so absorbed with the fact that somebody mistreated you, somebody victimized you, somebody treated you wrong, somebody uh, treated you unjustly or unfairly that it keeps you from moving forward in your spiritual life. And that's what's happening here is that uh, Rachel is barren, but she keeps blaming Leah, and she just sees this whole marriage thing as, as the source of all of her trouble, and she's not grace-oriented, and she's not dependent upon God. So the barrenness of Rachel is designed by God for discipline, both punitive discipline for her mental attitude sins of arrogance and self-absorption, but also because of Jacob's unfair treatment of Leah. So God is multitasking here with one problem, her barrenness. He is using that one issue to, to both deal with her in terms of her sins and her spiritual growth and Jacob and his spiritual growth. As a backdrop to this, we need to understand the divine viewpoint understanding of, of uh, children. The divine viewpoint framework for understanding children. Psalm 127, verse 4. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's use. Happy is the man, or blessed is the man, who has his quiver full of them. See, what the Bible is teaching is that it is a blessing to have children. 
It's not an inconvenience. It's not something that gets in the way of your lifestyle. It's not something that keeps you from doing what, what you want to do, which is the problem today. Is so many people, well, we'll have one or we'll have two, and uh, then as long as it doesn't get in the way of our agenda and what we want to do in life. But the emphasis in Scripture is to responsibly have children. Now, you shouldn't just irresponsibly, you know, have more children than you can possibly provide for or take care of, but that you should have children because they are a blessing from the the Lord. And the analogy here is to a, a warrior with a quiver full of arrows. And what is a warrior doing? He's going into battle and he is defeating the enemy through his through his weapons, through his arrows. And so the backdrop for understanding Psalm 127.5 is spiritual warfare, that we as believers are involved in a spiritual warfare and the way that we can impact the world, the cosmic system of the devil, is by having children, training them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, teaching them doctrine so that as they grow and mature, they, they live their lives on the basis of a divine viewpoint uh, frame of reference, and then we're sending them out of the home into the world to have that invisible impact on the world system around us. And so there is this positive view all through Scripture of how valuable it is to have children and what a blessing it is. And so both Rachel and Leah understand this, and God blesses Leah, and she has children. God takes note of her situation, and he opens her womb. This is because, as Psalm 9.9 says, the Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed. See, in this marriage situation, Leah is the one who's overlooked, she's ignored, she... Uh, uh, Jacob is giving all of his attention to Rachel. So the Lord stands in, in her place and he uh, takes care of her in this position of being oppressed and ignored and uh, by, by Jacob. And it's the principle of Psalm 9.9. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. Again, Psalm 10, 17, and 18 restates this. You find it again and again throughout the Psalms. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their heart. You will cause your ear to hear, to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, that the man of the earth may oppress no more. In other words, God is going to be the one to vindicate uh, vindicate Leah, uh, even though Jacob is the one who has given all of his attention to Rachel. Just because he's married to two women doesn't mean that he should ignore one over the other. Psalm 146.9 states this same principle, but in its application is towards orphans and towards widows. The Lord watches over the strangers. He relieves the fatherless and the widow, but the way of the wicked he turns upside down. God is the one who protects those who do not have the protection of a husband or a father. God is the one who stands to vindicate those who are helpless and mistreated. So he gives four sons to Leah in rapid succession. And she recognizes this. And we look at verse 31. Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, and he opened her womb. So the Lord recognizes that she's the one who's being being ignored and specifically says he is the one who provides uh, fertility 
For her, remember the whole under what undergirds this whole thing is this whole concept of fertility and prosperity that God is blessing uh, them through this, and so that she is productive and God opens her womb. But Rachel was barren. Verse thirty-two: Leah conceived and uh, bore a son and named him Reuben, for she said, "Because the Lord has seen my affliction." My affliction, surely now my husband will love me. See, you hear what she's saying? She desires his love and affection. And so she names this first son Reuben because it's a word play. And all through this, every one of these names is a play on words in order to bring out a certain point. They tell us something about the divine viewpoint orientation of Leah. And there's a progression here in these names, and it tells us a lot about her mindset. And then when we shift over and look at Rachel, and uh, uh, when her maid Bilhah starts having uh, starts having children, their names those names reflect something. So Reuben, and I have the uh, the transliteration up here from the Hebrew Wa'uven, which is how it would be pronounced, if not the anglicized form Reuben. Sounds like the phrase Ra'avioni. And so there's a word play there. She names him something because it sounds like it's something else. So it's to remind, it's a reminder of this other principle that God is the one who has looked on her affliction. Now, what does this tell you about, about Leah? Where's her orientation? It's to God. She's grace-oriented. She's dependent upon God. She knows that God is the one who's going to vindicate her, not herself. She's not involved in any kind of uh, manipulation on her part in order to try to get the upper hand. There's a second word play that occurs in this verse, verse 32, when she says, Surely now my husband will uh, love me. It's the phrase, Yahavani, which has at that last syllable, Bani, is, is, it sounds like the word for my son, Bani. And so there is a, we have these word plays all through this that bring out uh, certain things. So when she, um, when she names Reuben, she is making an affirmation, a doctrinal affirmation, recognizing that her blessing comes from the Lord. Then she has another son. It's not long. She's pregnant again. She has a son, Simeon. And she says that when she has uh, Simeon, she names him Simeon in verse 33. She conceived again, bore a son, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved. So we see this progression. The Lord has uh, seen my affliction, and the Lord has heard that I am unloved. And this is a play on the word Shama to hear. Or the noun shemua, meaning news or rumor. The Lord has listened to my uh, problem. He recognizes that I am unloved. Then she has third son, verse 34. She conceived again, bore a son. Now this time my husband will become attached to me. Now that, see, I'm the one who's fertile. I'm the one who has productivity, not Rachel. So because I'm the one who, who can provide him with sons, he will become more attached to me. So she names him Levi. And this is, uh, sounds like the Hebrew word lava, meaning to join or be joined or to be attached. 
So you see the progression here. God's looked on my affliction. He's heard that I am unloved. And now maybe my husband will attach himself to me. So there's this longing that's being expressed in her soul that her husband will love her and give his attention to her and his affection to her. But finally she realizes that the only way she's going to have happiness and stability in life is because of God. And she finally reaches that point, and we see that with the fourth son, Judah. Her circumstances haven't changed, but she's going to name the fourth son Judah, which is based on the uh, Hebrew word yada, meaning to confess or to praise or to give thanks. And one form of it is Yehuda, a participial form, Yehuda, which is where we get the word, the name Judah. And so she recognizes that she just has to relax and praise God, and God's going to be the one who's going to give her happiness and fulfillment and meaning in life. But, of course, God has been prospering her and blessing her, and she's the one who's been uh, having children, and Rachel uh, has been frustrated because after four or five, four years or so has gone by, and she still hasn't uh, become pregnant. And so she is looking at Leah, and she says, "Look, that woman. First of all, she went along with Daddy, and she uh, cheated me out of having uh, Jacob as my husband alone. And now she's the one who keeps having the babies. And so she's just becoming uh, consumed with these mental attitude sins, where she's focusing on this this issue of of being cheated in the past and she's resentful and she's bitter. So she comes up with a scheme to try to uh, sub- have substitute uh, pro- productivity, much like uh, Sarah did, her great grandmother or her grandmother in law, with uh, Hagar. And so she's going to substitute uh, uh, her maid, Bilhah. Now, in ver- chapter 30, verse 1, we read Now, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she became jealous of her sister, first mental attitude sin. And she said to to Jacob, Give me children, or else I die. Then Jacob's anger burns against Rachel. This is the woman he loves. See, what happens here is here's this couple. They love each other, but because they have their priorities wrong and they're not oriented to doctrine first, then what happens is the wife is focused on one priority that, that she thinks is going to give her happiness, not, the, not her relationship with the Lord. And that, in turn, stimulates his mental attitude sins. He's already out of fellowship. I'm not saying she's the cause of his sin, but this is what happens in the dynamics of, uh, of a breakdown in a relationship. One person gets out of fellowship. The other person gets out of fellowship. Next thing you know... People who really love each other are at each other's throat. Next thing you know, they're headed to divorce court. It happens over and over and over again because they get their priorities wrong. And when they get their priorities wrong, they don't have. They get away from doctrine. They don't have objectivity anymore. They get involved in self-absorption, focusing on their job, their career, whatever it is that's important to them. And it just creates more and more conflict within the marriage. So Jacob says in verse 2, Jacob's anger burned against Rachel. And he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? And she said, Here, take my maid Bilhah. Go to her, an euphemism for sexual uh, uh, activity, sexual relations, that she may bear on my knees. In other words, when she gets pregnant, when she has a child, if it's on my knees, then that is, in essence, mine. This was the cultural practice of the day. Uh, verse 4, So she gave him her maid Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore a son. So the next two sons 
are from Bilhah. And the first one is called Dan. Uh, in verse 6, God is, uh, Rachel says, well, now God has vindicated me. See, that's what she wants. God hasn't vindicated her. She thinks that. See, this is that self-deception again. So she's going to name the son Dan, which comes from the Hebrew word deem, meaning to judge, to contend, or plead. And see, it's her perception. What's she focused on here? She's still focused on the past failures. She's still focused on these past slights and insults and the deception and everything else. And so rather than focusing on God, she is consumed with the source of what she thinks the problem is rather than dealing with the sin in her life. So God's saying, look, you're still not ready for me to, to handle the blessing that I want to give you. So she names him Dan. Notice the four names that, that uh, Leah gives all indicate her orientation to grace and her orientation to God and dependence upon God. The names Rachel gives focus on the conflict and the difficulty. And then Bilhah gets pregnant again, and she has, um, did I leave one out? I think I did. Bilhah has another son, and she names him Naphtali. And Naphtali means uh, to wrestle, to struggle. Uh, With mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister, she says, and I have indeed prevailed. So what's her focus? Her focus is on the conflict. Her focus isn't on God's grace and God's, uh, God's provision. Well, then, of course, now Leah gets into action because uh, she had stopped bearing children. So she's got no more children. So she decides, well, what's good for Rachel's good for her. So she's going to bring her maid into action, Zilpah, and she gives Zilpah to Jacob as a wife. You know, Rachel must have still been fairly young when this was going on, very virile, because he's got four women who are wanting him every night. So this is a problem, one of the problems with uh um, this plural marriage and he's uh, being um, well it's just a difficult situation so verse uh, verse 10 Zilpah bears Jacob a son and Leah says how fortunate now she thinks that this is blessing from God and she names him Gad which means fortune so she named him Gad and Leah's uh, made Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah says, Happy am I, for women will call me happy, and she names him Asher, from the Greek word, I mean the Hebrew word Asher, meaning blessed or happiness. So she expresses her, her joy and her happiness, and notice she's not focusing on the conflict, she's focusing on the fact that God has blessed her and she's happy. So we really see an insight into the character and the spiritual, spiritual nature of these two women. Then we have a little interlude in verse 14. In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field. Now, by now, Reuben is probably seven or eight years of age. All these other, he's the oldest. He was the firstborn. And he goes out and finds mandrakes. Mandrakes are an orange fruit, small orange fruit. And they had the reputation of being an aphrodisiac and uh, also helping in fertility. So he brought those to his mother, Leah. And Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of these mandrakes. And she's wanting to use, you know, this typical human viewpoint technique of trying to improve her own fertility. Maybe she'll get over this barren, uh, this problem with being barren. 
but Leah drives a bargain. She says, I'll, um, I'll make you a deal. And she uses the word for wages. So you see this idea just keeps coming back into the text that you get what you have worked for. And so she says there's going to be a wage involved here and uh, I'll trade you a night with Jacob for the mandrakes. So Jacob comes in from the field in verse 16 in the evening. Leah went out to meet him and said, well, you have to come into me. You're going to spend the night with me because I have hired you. There's the word sakar. Did I get that up here? Sakar for hire or wages. We've seen this three or four times already in this, in this section. I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night, and God gave heed to Leah. Again and again we see that it is God who is clearly involved in her uh, fertility and her uh, pregnancies. God gave heed to Leah, and she bore Jacob a fifth son. And she names him, uh, did I leave this one out too? Yeah, I left this one out too. This is, uh, this is uh, Issachar. She names this one Issachar. And Issachar is from that same root, Sakar, meaning to hire or wages. And this name has the idea of a man for recompense. She stresses that this is, Issachar is God's reward to her, and she has been trusting in God during this time of barrenness, and so apparently she believes that because she's continued to trust God, she hasn't gotten involved in all the little mind games and mental attitude sins like Rachel, that God has now blessed her with more children. This is the same word, in fact, Sakar, that is used for reward, that children are a blessing or a reward uh, from the Lord, used in Psalm 127, verse 3. Now we come to the next child, Zebulun. This is Leah's sixth from the Hebrew word Zabad, meaning to bestow upon or to endow someone with something. So she names her sixth-born Zebulun because... uh, she says, He's a, God has endowed me with a good gift. Now my husband will dwell with me. Maybe he'll come and live with me and pay, pay more attention to me. Notice her focus is still on the attraction and the affection of Jacob. And then she has a daughter. All these sons, there's one daughter, Dinah, and there's no meaning given to the name of Dinah. And the reason is, is because Dinah plays no role in the history of the nation whatsoever, uh, she's not the head of any of the tribes or anything, so she's not. There's no significance there. She has a daughter, Dinah, and then verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel and gave heed to her and opened her womb. So she conceived and bore a son and said, "God has taken away my reproach." And she named him Joseph, saying, "May the Lord give me another son." And Joseph comes from the. Uh, root Yasaf meaning to add or to increase. God has added to me. And so she uses that, and with the play on words, maybe God will give me another son. But it is Joseph that will bring increase to the nation because he is the one who will uh, go to Egypt, and he's the one that God will raise to the position of second highest power in Egypt, 
and then because of his position in Egypt, he will be, provide a refuge for the rest of the family where they will go to Egypt. So this is how God's grace works in this family. Now, the strife within the family continues. And I'm going to try to t- take us through the rest of this uh, episode because what we see that links all of this together is this emphasis on God providing fruitfulness, fertility, blessing, prosperity, uh, productivity to the family despite their human viewpoint, sinful ways of manipulating God and trying to get the blessing. But through the whole thing, we see a gradual maturity taking place. So first of all, this whole section we just finished from back in verse 21 of chapter uh, 28 or 29 down through uh, 30 verse 24, God has been increasing uh, the children, and he has been blessing and giving productivity and fertility to the family. Now we're going to see how he provides material prosperity uh, to the family. It came about when Rachel had born Joseph that Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own place and to my own country. So he's ready to go home, but he really hasn't acquired anything while he has been there in Haran. He doesn't have anything to show for this. God's taking care of him, but God has not prospered him materially. So he said, Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you, and let me depart, for you yourself know my service which I have rendered you. But Laban said to him, If now it pleases you, stay with me. I have divined or I have learned that the Lord has blessed me on your account. So what we see here from the mouth of Laban is a recognition that it is God who has blessed Laban through his association with Jacob. And so Laban has prospered and his herds and his flocks have increased, but Jacob doesn't have anything. So he, Laban goes on and says, well, tell me what your wages are. There's that word again. What's your wage? What are you going to earn from all of this? And I will give it. And Jacob says in verse 29, You yourself know how I have served you and how your cattle have fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased to a multitude. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I turn. But now when shall I provide for my own household also? So Jacob recognizes that Laban has, uh, has his herds, his flocks have increased, his wealth has increased, but his hasn't. He has nothing to show for these last almost 20 years of service. So verse 31, Laban said, What shall I give you? And Jacob said, You shall not give me anything. If you'll do one thing for me, I will again pasture and keep your flock. Now he's going to come up with this little scheme utilizing what was sort of a superstitious means of animal husbandry at that time. Rather than trusting God to to increase his herds and flocks and his possessions, he's going to try to use this uh, superstitious technique to increase his flocks. But guess what? God blesses him anyway. Isn't that interesting? Just like when uh, Abraham uh, didn't trust God to provide for him during the famine, he went down to Egypt... And he came back wealthier than when he left. See, this flies in the face of our superficial view of God that, he, that if we obey him, he's going to uh, increase us uh, our material prosperity. And if we are disobedient, he's going to take it away. See, God may, uh, God's going to bless us for his purposes in our life. 
and it's not directly necessarily directly related to whether we're obedient or disobedient. You can be obedient and God, or excuse me, you can be disobedient and God may bless you with tremendous uh, material prosperity. On the other hand, you may be obedient and God may take everything away from you like he did with Job. The issue is what is God's plan for your life and how is and, and what is he doing in your life. So they set this thing up in verse 32 where Jacob says, Let me go through your entire flock today and remove from there all the speckled and spotted sheep, not the, the ones who are white, but just the speckled and spotted ones and every black one among the lambs and uh, the spotted and speckled ones among the goats, and that will be my wages. So most of the goats were a solid color. So he's going to take the ones that have uh, different markings on them, and that's not going to be a very large uh, flock. And he goes on in verse 33, So my honesty will answer for me later when you come concerning my wages. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, will be considered stolen. Okay, I'm going to take my herd. It's going to be originally made up of all the speckled and spotted and black lambs that, uh, and goats that you have. And that's my wages. And it's not a very big herd. But if you come and you find any solid ones there, then, then you're going to know those are yours. And so he, this is the deal that he makes. So he, Laban says, good, let it be according to your, your word. And in verse 35, so he, that is Laban, removed on that day the striped and spotted male goats and all the speckled and spotted female goats, every one with white in it, and all the black ones among the sheep, and gave them to the care of, uh, so, excuse me, that's so he, that's Jacob. It's hard to follow the pronouns here. That's Jacob takes them and gives them to his sons to take care of them. And he put a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob. That's, this, is, uh, this is Laban here in verse 36. He's going to make sure Laban's not going to get any more from him. So he's going to isolate him and leave him there. And he's got this small flock, this small herd, and they're just going to disappear. That's his thinking. So Jacob has his superstitious scheme. He's going to take these various rods, these various poles of of different kinds of wood, poplar and almond and plane trees, and he's going to peel off the bark. So he's going to have a you're going to have a white strip and a dark strip and a white strip and a dark strip and a white strip and a dark strip, and he's going to plant these posts in front of the sheep, the sheep and the goats. And the superstition was that whatever the animal saw, that would influence the color of the whatever was in the womb. See, it's all superstition. This, this doesn't work. This, is just, this was just their idea at the time. And so Jacob has this scheme. See, he's the schemer, the trickster, the conniver. And he's going he's gonna to pull this off. And so he sets the rods out there. And so the flocks mated by the rods, and the flocks brought forth stripes, speckled, and spotted. Why? Because God's in control. Eventually, Jacob makes his point. God's the one who brought the increase. It didn't have anything to do with the fact that he had a lucky rabbit's foot, as it were. It had to do with the fact that despite his conniving, God was going to bless him. And we've seen that running throughout this whole episode with Jacob. And Jacob separated the lambs, made the flocks face toward the striped, and all the black in the flock of Laban, and he put his herds apart, blah, blah, blah. And so what happens is his flocks increase, but see, God is turning the tables now on Laban. Laban's decrease. 
Laban's losing money, and his flocks aren't strong, they're feeble, but God blesses Jacob. So during this period of time, Jacob's flocks just just multiply tremendously, and he ends up with tremendous wealth, and Laban loses his wealth because it's the outworking of the principle that God is going to bless Jacob. And so this sets us up for the time that Jacob became exceedingly prosperous, verse 43, had large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys, and now it's time to go home. And that is the focus of chapter 31 and the return back to, back to the promised land. Because now he's ready, and there's going to be one more episode that occurs on the way back. And what we see is that even though the focus in these chapters has been on Jacob's failures and his manipulation and everything. Nevertheless, there's been spiritual growth and spiritual maturity because on the way home, something is going to happen and Jacob is going to get a new name that indicates that he has become uh, spiritually mature and he's going to focus on God. He understands that God's the one who provided everything for him and he's going to look to God to be the one that's a source of his blessing not this, the tricks and conniving, and we won't see that part of his character anymore after chapter 32. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time that we can focus on your grace. And grace means you provide everything for us. Grace means you provided a free salvation for us that's not dependent on who we are or what we've done. And just as you provided for Jacob and you provided for Leah, and it wasn't based on anything that they had done, but it was based on your plan, your purposes. So you have provided a perfect salvation for us in Jesus Christ that's not based on who we are, what we've done, but it's based on who you are and what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And so that salvation is by grace. It's free. It's based on simply faith and trust in you and your provision of a Savior. Father, we pray that you would challenge us, encourage us, strengthen us with what we study this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.